So today we're in for a bit of a spooky time because I'm thrilled to be introducing and welcoming into the reading corner Philip Hicks and we're going to be talking about his second novel featuring Aveline Jones. It's called The Bewitching of Aveline Jones and it takes place in the West Country. Um, It's a spooky mystery uh, which involves stone circles and possibly witches and of course brings back her friend Harold to help her solve the situation that she gets herself into. So first of all let's welcome Phil. Thank you so much for having me. You're joining us all the way from Portland in Oregon. That's right I um, came here via a rather circuitous route which took me to Ireland and New Zealand and that's where I met my partner who's American and um, we came here about uh, five or six years ago. I was interested to read in your biography um, or at least in the marketing club that came with the book that you grew up next door to a graveyard. Now is this true and did it have an influence on you? This is true. Uh, My father was a, a Church of England vicar and one of his postings was to a place called Smallbridge in Rochdale. And sadly, the church is now defunct. And, you know, it already started falling into disrepair when we lived there. And this was, you know, many, many years ago. The front of the graveyard that faced the road, they kept very neat and tidy because that was the graveyard that everybody saw. But the rear of the graveyard was crumbling and Victorian. The tree roots were were snaking through the mausoleums. There was a grave there of a soldier that that had fought uh, at the Battle of Waterloo. It was magical uh, and terrifying. You know, I would play there during the day. I had names for all the trees. And at night, you know, it would change a little bit. I would peer from my bedroom window rather nervously, and it was on the edge of the Pennines. So the weather was was often very hostile. And uh, I believe that it's had a, a huge influence um, on my tastes mm. in, you know, reading and films later in life, because, you know, I, I'm a horror obsessive and I, and I can't help but tie it back to that in some respect. In the same way that the Brontes must have been influenced by living up on the moors near Howarth. Yeah, it's very true. I think, you know, when you're surrounded by the elements, particularly when the, you know, extreme you know, strong winds and you can't help but have your imagination fired by it because it does make the outside world seem perhaps a little bit scarier. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I have this sort of obsession with all things dark. (laughs) So take us into this second story um, that features Aveline. Uh, Perhaps you could just set it up for us. Well, we, we rejoin Aveline, who we met in The Haunting of Aveline Jones. And this time she's being taken on a summer holiday, a last minute summer holiday um, to a small village called Norton Wick. And uh, Aveline has an interest in, uh, like the author, has an interest in all things pertaining to the supernatural. And she discovers that there's a stone circle right next door to the house. And it, it's called the Witch Stones. And of course, that immediately intrigues her. It has this you know, quite spooky name. Um, It's a mysterious place like all stone circles are. And, you know, she's very keen to discover more about it. And in doing so, she meets uh, a young girl called Hazel. And the rest of the book really details their developing relationship. 
and how it ties in with this sort of mysterious village and with this mysterious stone circle. And uh, her friend Harold arrives um, armed with books to help her as she, you know, endeavours to uncover what's really going on. This is set in uh, the sort of southwest of England. It's just a little, you're very specific, it's just a few miles outside of Bristol. But it is a fictitious village, isn't it? The name is fictitious. It's an it's an amalgam of some of the villages that we move to later in life. There's one called Norton Marreward. Uh, there's one called Stanton Wick. So I, I always found the names very exotic and unusual. And so I mashed up a couple of the names. And the place itself, I have to admit, is a very thinly disguised village called Stanton Drew. And the Stanton Drew Stone Circle is... It's not as well known as Stonehenge and Avebury, but it's probably, I think it's it's ranked as one of the third most important stone circles in the country. And, you know, anyone who's into that sort of thing will will immediately know, know the name. So I have to be honest and say I've I've hijacked Stanton Drew and turned it into Norton Wick. And quite early on in the book, you, in one paragraph, very economically, actually, you managed to get all the different theories that are out there because it's a mystery still. We don't exactly know what the stone circles are. And that that's where Aveline starts, really. She's read about this and she can't make up her own mind what the stone circles are. That's part of the mystery. Yes. I mean, I I think that for me, I think I'd be I'd be slightly disappointed if we ever get to the bottom of what stone circles are you know, we're really for, and I don't think we ever will, because I think they were for more than one purpose. And that purpose perhaps evolved over time. You know, I mean, we're using them to this day, we're, we're using them as tourist sites and places, you know, where we go and try and connect with the past and, and you know, marvel at them ourselves. So I must admit, I haven't done this in a very academic way. I've I've sort of bodged this together in, in a, in, in a, in what I hope is a child-friendly way of, you know, introducing them to the various theories surrounding stone circles without getting too deep and without getting too accurate. So I hope that any historians that read it will forgive me for my bodged efforts. I was going to say, just uh, just a, a brief comment, really, and that is the idea that these stone circles could have been used for many things. In a way, that's something that emerges in your story. I won't say too much more about that. But it's certainly something that's there uh, as the story progresses. Let's turn our attention to other characters. And there are two characters that feel like they could be antagonists. And we're never quite sure which side we're going to come down on. You know, there's Hazel and there's Alice. Now, Hazel is a young girl. Um, She's got very striking appearance. She's got mismatched colour eyes, long, dark hair. We might be thinking quite early on, possibly, which, you know, it's possible you might be going that way. And then there's this other character called Alice. And we don't know what to think about her for much of the story either. So tell us about Alice. I wanted to try and keep this unpredictable. You know, I think there'll be many adult readers that will read this and, you know, we'll we'll, we'll get it, get what's going on, you know, fairly early on. But I wanted to keep things unreliable and I wanted to try and keep readers from being able to come to firm conclusions early on so Alice um, is a character that I wanted to be you know slightly ambivalent 
but also to um, perhaps act as a counterweight to Hazel. Um, whereas Hazel is very unpredictable, you know, I thought by putting Alice in as, as a slightly more predictable character, that they, it would form a nice balance. And that later in the book, you know, there's a reason that that reveals itself as to why, you know, there's this yin, yin and yang relationship um, between them. So in some respects, she's a decoy. In other respects, you know, it's a little bit like um, how, you know, Agatha Christie will throw out lots of potential suspects and you, you're never quite sure who it is until you, you know, you reach the end page. And in my own bumbling manner, you know, I was trying to emulate that to, to a certain respect. I also wanted this sort of person who was there as a sort of guardian figure and somebody who was very much aware of this, of these stone circles and was in touch with their energy. Mm. We should say that she is the vicar of the village as well. I just want to tell listeners that she wears a bowler hat. She wears big, heavy boots and uh, brightly coloured socks and it's considered quite unusual. I definitely wanted her to come across as a perhaps a little bit out there and, you know, a little bit eccentric. I can tell you that my father never never wore a bowler hat or bright stripy socks he I think everything in his wardrobe was grey. I just want to talk a little bit about Harold's role in this story so he comes to stay with Aveline and he brings with him he's going to help us solve this mystery by bringing lots of books with him and they are very useful they do discover things in there so I wanted to talk a little bit about your research and whether your research involves book reading as Harold does, or whether you rely more on the internet, or is it a mix of both? It's a mixture. I, I will say that over the years, you know, the balance has swung, you know, with a few clicks, we can find what we need. And, you know, I hate that. And I hate myself for doing it. I'd much rather be combing the shelves of a dusty bookshop for, a, for an ancient tome. I do, you know, I buy a lot of books still. I'm 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 glad to say um I've bought a lot of books on folklore and things like because it's an it's an interest of mine. But it's a subject I've been reading about uh, primarily all my life. And I do think that as well as research that I'll I'll look at while I'm writing something, I'm also drawing on decades of reading books about ghosts and devils and all that <laughs> business so just having a look in the book which is literally you know the finished copy of this has literally popped through my letterbox today and it's yes. a very handsome production with um evocative mm. illustrations by uh, keith robinson and uh, they're not what i would call illustrative they're they kind of create an atmosphere for the book but each chapter has like an epigram, a quotation. Some of them are real and some of them are invented, aren't they? Tell me about some of the real quotations, you know, the, the sort of authentic quotations in here. The made up quotes tend to be things that relate to the village and village life. And, and I hope that's sort of clear. Whereas the ones that relate to witchcraft are disturbingly real in many cases, and there's a wealth of, um, you know, research material. You know, the witch trials have been, you know, very heavily documented. There are horror of the past. You know, one of the many things that we look back in absolute horror at and, um, you know, the injustices and the cruelty 
and the wickedness, um, you know, that, that was done then. Um, and also, you know, there was this, what I find interesting is that it wasn't superstition. It was just fact. You know, it wasn't a matter that you, whether you believed in witches or you believed in the devil, you know, it was just a matter, a matter of fact, the same way that we accept that the sun will rise in the morning in the East, you know, people back then just accepted, you know, the existence mm-hmm. of witches. And unfortunately, you know, I've drawn those, well, not unfortunately, but I've drawn those quotes from many fascinating both trial accounts uh, in church records. And, you know, they're incredibly documented. It's, it's centuries later. We, we have, you know, almost word for word transcripts mm-hmm. of what was said. And when we read it now, you know, it's sort of preposterous in, in, in many respects, but it was being said then just as a simple statement of fact. And so, you know, I've tried to bring those in to add a little bit of a menace to the book and also to try and shed a little insight that maybe children will be, you know, interested in pursuing that, you know, the, the history of these lands is infused with this kind of darkness. And I do hope that I haven't, um, that I've treated with them, you know, uh, with the respect they deserve and it's not seen as a frivolous um, exercise. That's I definitely wanted to avoid that. Mm. Just while we're on the sort of the darkness of it all, I think, you know, as the story progresses, that ramps up the kind of terror of it. Um, And I wondered for you where the boundaries were in terms of writing for children. What, What would you consider acceptable and what would you consider something that goes just a little bit too far? It's a it's a very fine line to straddle. And I don't think there's an exact answer where you can say this is the point where we need to tone it back because children are different. I firmly believe that children want to be scared and enjoy being scared. And I don't think they should be coddled and nursed. I think that they're robust and they can take a lot of scares. And when they sit down to read a scary book, they don't want to put it down and think that wasn't scary. You know, that's going to be hugely disappointing for them. But writing it is treading a very fine line. And I have I often cross it because I have no idea really, <laughs> you know, where that line is. So I try and use my instinct. Uh, you know, obviously you'll know when some things are un- unsuitable. You know, common sense will tell you that. But when I'm very much striving to make something genuinely unsettling and scary, part of it is instinct. And part of it comes with working with the editorial team at Usborne. Um, I famously had a comment um, that said, can we tone down the hanging scene a bit? And, you know, it always makes me laugh. So I say, oh, God, what, was, what am I thinking of? Like, you know, putting that sort of stuff in the children's book. But it's interesting also, there's also some editorial back and forth mm-hmm. um, about you know what should go in so it's a it's a learning curve and it's um, a little bit of common sense and a little bit of guesswork yeah I want to ask a question now that I don't know whether it's something that you've given consideration to but you've talked about your background your family background and I know that there will be some church schools that will feel really uncomfortable about having this book in school what 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 are your thoughts about that that's a a difficult question. I mean, I respect the guardians, the teachers, the librarians, the parents. These are the people who know these children better than anyone. And if they deem that a book 
is is not suitable then i i wholly respect that decision because they know far better than i the 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 audience they're dealing with i would be disappointed of course mm. um as i've said i firmly believe that there's you know a desire for these type of books i think that we live in an age where you know children should be encouraged to question things and if they find things you know disturbing then they should be encouraged to talk about them but i'd be very very sad if i found out that i traumatized some kid yeah so ultimately you know i i'll respect the people whose job it is to decide what's suitable and, and what's not i think it's not on the grounds of terror or fear but on more philosophical or theological grounds some schools i think feel worried about having books like they wouldn't have harry potter in school either i respect people's faith enormously and many schools are clearly est- established you know on the lines of their faith and uh, i think that's fine and and like i say i i respect that i don't think that should preclude children from reading about subjects that the school may find uncomfortable because i think surely part of their job is to be able to answer questions and to have a confidence in their faith that enables their children to go into different areas i mean we encourage children to question things don't we and to learn uh, you know and to and to be educated and i would hope that these books aren't putting their faith in question or 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 making their faith, faith feel threatened but that could perhaps be complementary to it. You know, they, they also deal with mysticism and wonder and, and the supernatural and, and as many faiths do. So, you know, I, I might be tempted to argue that, you know, this is something that, you know, you want to encourage, but it's a tough question. I it's, like it's not every faith school. You know, some faith schools are absolutely, uh, I'm working with one at the moment that says nothing is off limits. They're all opportunities for us to have conversations with our young people i think that's that's the perfect way of capturing that 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 sort of tension i want to come back to your writing now because your evocation of place is sublime in places i absolutely loved it you've got that knack for describing something and the person reading it feels that they've always felt like that <laughs> read it and they think gosh yes that's exactly how i feel uh, there's a bit early on in, in the book where Aveline is experiencing the day and she says the day had a hazy, fuzzy feel about it now. Everything's starting to soften like melting butter. The horizon shimmered, midges danced lazily between the sun's rays. And it was just that notion of that. I, I knew when I read that I could feel that part of the day where the main heat has sort of gone out of it and it's just softening down that little bit. I thought it's absolutely beautiful. So I'm not sure I have a question about it, but it felt to me like somebody that really spends time in nature observing it. Yes. Uh, Thank you for saying those very kind things. And we don't have to make a question. You can just you feel free to just praise the writing, Nikki, and I'll, I'll just nod along. But, um, you know, I love I, I love being outside. I, I love the elements. I love the wonder of nature, the, the inspiration that it can give you, the break it gives you from this madness of internet and 
jobs and traffic jams and you know all the nonsense that that modern living entails i've grown up in two places that were huge influences you know we've t- spoken about you know growing up in the, the north of england where you know the elements were very much in your face and it was very cold and often you know very brutal the weather and that was hugely inspirational and influential and also in later years as in the west country and you know it, in late summer it has this lazy hazy you know the tractors gathering in the hay bales and you know sm- the smell of apples in the air it's truly magical and when i was growing up in, at school you know we we learned about wordsworth and how he would tramp across the hills being inspired by this majestic landscape and that always struck a chord with me because i i always found nature to be this wondrous peaceful sometimes terrifying place that's always changing and never looks the same and i was desperate to try and capture some of that in my writing and also emulate authors like uh, you know Alan Garner and Susan Cooper authors that were very influential when I was young who were able you know if, you, if for anyone who's read The Dark is Rising you know you're immediately even when you think about it you're immediately plunged into this magical snowy mm-hmm. landscape you know it just sticks with you and it it's just sets this perfect backdrop to the story and, and I just mm-hmm. think that instilling a sense of place and time into the stories can censor the reader and just make it a little bit more real. Mm. Just a couple more questions. I want to come back to names and naming and your heroine, Aveline Jones. It's really interesting, isn't it, how you can have a sort of very ordinary surname and then you put this rather unusual first name with it and somehow it just sounds so right. Then you've got your, in this particular story, you've got Hazel as well. So we know the name Hazel's got so many connotations, you know, the Hazel tree. We even talk about witch Hazel for soothing cuts and so on. At one point, Hazel says to Abeline, at least you're not named after a nut. Yes. (laughs) But Abeline is a hazelnut. I didn't know that. And I think we might have to get this copy return to the publisher for a... <laughs> I didn't know that do you know I thought that was deliberate I thought you were twinning them in some way that's one of its meanings is that it is a hazelnut and then there's I... this other side of it whether it's related to birds or not but certainly it looks as though it came from old French wow you know I wish I was that smart Nikki and I wish I could claim that but I have to be honest and that is news to me I thought maybe it's coming in the third book. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> okay, maybe you should just tell us briefly about, we we, we are going to have the vanishing of Aveline Jones next. What might happen to Aveline? I'm hugely excited by the third book. It was, it took me forever to write and for the story to come out. It was a real struggle. I thought book writing was going to get easier, but it's getting more difficult in my experience. And it's Long Barrows, um, so it continues this sort of theme of, you know, mystical things in the landscape. Um, It's Long Barrows and it's dark fairy lore. I can't wait. I can't wait. It sounds brilliant. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining me in the Reading Corner today and just taking us a little bit deeper into the background uh, of Aveline Jones. Hopefully we'll get the chance to talk again when the next one's published. I would love that. Thanks so much, Nikki. It's it's been a real joy to talk to you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes.
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.